After the U.S. Civil War, veterans looked for ways to remain in touch with fellow soldiers and sailors. When the fraternal organization, the Grand Army of the Republic, was founded, Union veterans in Mississippi were eager to join. The group boasted more than 400,000 members at its peak and produced five U.S. presidents. Nationally, the GAR advocated for voting rights for black veterans, lobbied Congress to fund veterans' pensions, and drove the establishment of the Memorial Day holiday. But when formerly enslaved black veterans sought to join posts in the former Confederate state of Mississippi, the bonds of brotherly loyalty were tested. Welcome to Speaking of Mississippi, where we'll explore the landmark moments and overlooked stories of our state's history. I'm Chris Goodwin with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, and this podcast is made possible by the John and Lucy Shackelford Charitable Fund of the Community Foundation for Mississippi. In this episode, we talk to Jeff Gambrone, who works as a reference librarian at the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. He is the author of four books, including a regimental history of the 38th Mississippi Infantry and an illustrated guide to the Vicksburg Campaign and National Military Park. Jeff, thanks for being with us today. You've written, you've researched about different aspects of Mississippi history, often the Civil War era. Even so, you were not particularly familiar with the Grand Army of the Republic. Tell us about that organization. The Grand Army of the Republic was the largest Union veterans organization in the United States. Founded right after the Civil War, by 1890, it had almost half a million or more members. It was a a very prominent, very distinguished organization, did a lot of charitable works, and it also lobbied very heavily for causes that the Union veterans were very enthusiastic about. It was a very prominent organization in 19th century America, and unfortunately, a lot of people are not aware of just how influential it was in its day. How did you first learn of the organization and become interested in it? I had known about it for some years, but I really got interested in it after I found out one of my own relatives had been a member. Hmm. My uh, great-great-uncle, Miles Adams, lived up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, was a member of Custer Post Number no. 5 in Grand Rapids hmm. and, it, and was a member for years, right up until his death. And when I found out I had a relative in it, I really piqued my interest and made me want to learn a little bit more about what this organization was and what it stood for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... Who were Benjamin Franklin Stevenson and William Rutledge, and what did they have to do with the GAR, and what uh, what role did the Meridian Campaign play in the founding of that organization? Benjamin Franklin Stevenson was the founder of uh, the GAR as we know it today, and William Rutledge was his close friend and confidant. And the two of them served together in the 14th Illinois Infantry, one of the Union Army units that fought in the uh, Meridian Expedition. That was a campaign that took place in February 1864, led by uh, General William T. Sherman. It marched from Vicksburg all the way to Meridian, wrecked the city of Meridian quite thoroughly, and then marched back to Vicksburg without having fought a major battle. It was a very successful expedition, and a lot of people consider it uh, Sherman's, basically his warm-up for his march to the sea uh, later that year. It was during the Meridian campaign 
that Stevenson and Rutledge came up with the idea for the GAR. Yes. Uh, the, the two were, were tent mates. They would camp together at night. And since there wasn't a lot of fighting, I think they had a lot of free time on their hands. So as friends do, they got to talking and particularly talking about what the, the United States was going to be like after the war. And they realized they needed to do something to try and uh, cement the patriotism and try and make sure that the country was not ever going to go through another civil war like they were experiencing. And so they hashed out the idea for a union veterans organization. They said, who better to promote the cause of patriotism and country than the men who fought to defend this country and preserve the union? So they started really hashing out all of the rules and regulations for what was going to become the Grand Army of the Republic. So there were qualifications for membership. What were those and how was the GAR's structure at the local level? The membership requirements were pretty simple. First, you had to show good moral character. You had to be honorably discharged from uh, the Union Army or Navy. You had to have served in the military between April 12, 1861 and April 9, 1865, basically the beginning and end of the Civil War. The applicant could have never borne arms against the United States. And each applicant to the GAR had to apply to their local post, and they had to be voted on by the membership. And all it took was one black ball, and you were out. So if somebody in the post didn't like you, you weren't getting in. But the GAR was organized around posts, which were organized at the local level in a town or a county. These would have been men that knew each other. They lived in the same area, and... The posts were organized basically in a military fashion. They also threw in little helpings of Freemasonry, yeah. which was a very popular 19th century fraternal organization. But you had ranks in the GAR. The commander of the post was the leader. The vice commander was second in command. You had an adjutant who acted as secretary for the organization. And uh, you also had a quartermaster who was the treasurer hmm. for your local post. And a lot of times the posts would create their own post hall. They would build their own building. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, none of them in Mississippi survived to this day. But some of the posts in the state did have their own express uh, post hall. Others would, would rent a space or borrow a space from an organization. But a lot of them did build a post. And it was like a clubhouse. A lot of them had relics from the war on the walls. They had games and activities on a regular basis. They would have you know uh, potluck dinners. It was really a focal point of the community for a lot of Union veterans. Jeff, we've talked about the men of the GAR. Was there any role for women? There was. <clears throat> there was an auxiliary organization to the Grand Army of the Republic that was known as the National Women's Relief Corps, which was chartered in 1883. And there was a uh, post of that organized in the Department of Louisiana and Mississippi. It was organized in 1893 and uh, it would be a couple of years later, though, before the first Mississippi uh, chapters were organized. It would be about 1900 before uh, Mississippians would, would have their own uh, posts within the, the Women's Relief Corps. And at, uh, to begin with, they were part of uh, uh, the Louisiana uh, Department, and they had to go down to New Orleans for their meetings. But in 1909, the Mississippi uh, Post uh, petitioned to have their own uh, department, saying it was too 
great at uh, travel in the distance and too expensive to have to go down to New Orleans for the meetings. Yeah. So they, they asked to have their own department, which, and that request was granted. And the Mississippi Department of the Women's Relief Corps was organized on December 18, 1909, by Josephine uh, Shelton of Natchez. And what sort of activities did the Women's Relief Corps undertake? Do we have any idea about that? Yeah, they would, they would basically support the GAR in any of the functions they did. If they were having a parade, they would help to set up. They would uh, uh, have host parties and, uh, and uh, celebrations for the GAR. They, these were the wives and daughters of members. So they, they had a very close relationship to the men that were in the, the organization. So anything the GAR did, the women would be there helping out. And they were they uh, played a uh, very important role in helping the GAR to function. What was the first post in Mississippi? The first post was established in Mississippi in 1870, and there were two of them uh, that were established at the same time. They first created the Department of Mississippi, which was led by a gentleman named Jonathan Tarble. He was a Union officer during the war, had served in a New York Cavalry Regiment, came down to Mississippi during Reconstruction, and he was going to be the guiding force behind the creation of the first two posts in the state. The first post that was established was right here in Jackson, and the second post was uh, established in Vicksburg. In this time, in the 1870s during Reconstruction, those were the only two posts. They were mostly made up of men that had come down to Mississippi during Reconstruction. They were not natives of the state. They had served in the Union Army, and they were mostly stationed here during Reconstruction. So what was the path to growth throughout the state for the Grand Army of the Republic after Jackson and Vicksburg? This earliest incarnation of the GAR really didn't grow after these first two posts were established. Mm -hmm. This was a very turbulent time in Mississippi's history. This is right after the Civil War. Reconstruction is going on. A lot of white Southerners were very upset at what was going on. They felt that their rights were being run roughshod by the, the federal government. And there was a lot of opposition to the GAR and what it stood for, particularly since a lot of the membership of the GAR also held posts in state government. For example, Jonathan Tarble was uh, on the Mississippi Supreme Court. And in fact, he heard a case while he was on the Supreme Court of a member of the GAR who was murdered right here in Jackson by a local citizen. And that got a lot of commentary in the newspapers. They basically felt it was it was rigged against this local citizen, Henry Sizer, who was accused of murdering James Tuck, a police officer in Jackson, former Union Army soldier and a member of the GAR here in Jackson. So when Reconstruction ended in the state about 1876 and most of the Union soldiers that were stationed here were sent elsewhere, the GAR pretty much died out for the time being. The post in Jackson and the one in Vicksburg both just kind of quietly faded away. So those posts were mostly built around Union men who had come to the state, but Mississippi had thousands of Union veterans that were in the state. They were the African-American soldiers. It did. Uh, there were over 17,000 African-American soldiers that had served in the Union Army and a much smaller contingent of white soldiers that had also served in the Union Army. And those men uh, were interested in the GAR and would have liked to have been a part of it, but it was going to be a few more years before they were going to get their chance. So the GAR in the state faded away at that time, but it did reappear some years later. 
Yes, it did. It would be about a decade and a half. It would be 1884 before the JR would come back to the state of Mississippi. And it, it started with the creation of a new department in the Grand Army of the Republic. The Department of the Gulf was established, which was supposed to include the states of Mississippi and Louisiana. William Roy was elected the first commander of this new department, and he really started pushing for the establishment of GAR posts in both Louisiana and Mississippi. And the first post that was going to be established in the state was in Vicksburg. Hmm. And it would have the very creative name of Vicksburg Post Number 7. It was the first post to be established in the post-Reconstruction era. In fact, the commander of the Department of the Gulf, uh, which was soon to be renamed the Department of Louisiana and Mississippi, was a man named Jacob Gray, and he traveled to Vicksburg in May 1889 specifically to inaugurate this initial JAR camp in the state. It was started with 11 charter members, and Vicksburg was a good place to start it because it was one of the larger cities in the state. There were a fairly large number of Union veterans who had settled in or had even just stayed in Vicksburg after the war. And so it was a good sea ground for Union veterans. Now, this first post was going to be all white. They were not at this time establishing African-American posts. It was going to be a little bit later. But this first post was going to be all white. And the man that was selected to lead this first post was Frederick Speed. He had been a Union officer during the Civil War. He had fought in a Maine regiment. He had been on duty with the Federal Army in Vicksburg in 1865, and in fact, he had been involved in a rather notorious incident, the Steamboat Sultana, which had been hired to take Union veterans and prisoners of war back up uh, to the northern states. Uh, He was one of the officers responsible for loading that ship. Well, unfortunately, it was grossly overloaded with thousands of Union prisoners where it was rated to carry, I think, about 300. And just north of Memphis, the Sultana exploded. And the loss of life was extremely large. In fact, more than were lost on the Titanic. And the only man that was charged in that incident was Frederick Speed. And he was court-martialed and found guilty, although his conviction was later overturned. But I've often thought that he stayed in Vicksburg because it wouldn't have been healthy for him to go back to go back, back up north. north. But uh, he became a very prominent citizen in Vicksburg. He was a beloved judge. He was very active in the Freemasons. And he was an excellent choice to head the GAR in Vicksburg because he was a real go-getter. He pushed to grow the organization. It had 11 members when it was chartered in 1889. But over the next couple of years, it would grow to uh, about uh, 34 members. Hmm. So it definitely prospered under his leadership. Where was the lodge? Did they build a lodge or did they take over a structure? The Vicksburg Post did not build a lodge. From everything I've been able to discover from the newspaper accounts, they tended to either rent or borrow halls from other organizations. I know at one point they were meeting in the offices of one of the steamboat lines that was headquartered in Vicksburg. They they tended to move around a bit, so they never actually built their own uh, post. They were kind of itinerant. So what were some of the activities and things that that post undertook? Well, actually, right after they were formed, they took on a very large undertaking. They promoted a reunion to be held at Vicksburg in 1890 called the Blue-Gray Reunion. It was a move for Union and Confederate veterans to come together at Vicksburg for this grand meeting of former foes. And they promoted this reunion all over the country, encouraging both Union and Confederate veterans to come to Vicksburg in in 1890. And uh, 
they were able to pull it off. They held the Blue-Gray reunion in 1890. It was a very marked success. They had thousands of men coming to the reunion. One of the newspapers wrote that the old veterans were assembled at the Cotton Exchange to obtain badges, and all over the streets, knots of veterans were to be seen in earnest conversation, fighting the battles over again. So they And it was really uh, uh, these men coming together that helped to spur interest in creating the Vicksburg National Military Park, which would happen just about five years later. So the Confederate veterans had their organization at the same time as well. Was this the first time that those groups had had that sort of meeting and, and on that scale? It certainly was in Mississippi. There had been, I think, other get-togethers in other states, but in terms of Mississippi reunions, this was, I think, the first major combined reunion where you had both Union and Confederate veterans. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first of the posts that would be formed in that second iteration. What about the ones that followed that? Well, unfortunately, before the new post could be formed in Mississippi, there was going to be a rather dramatic upheaval in the organization. And there was a huge controversy that uh, happened in 1890. Jacob Gray, who was the department head of the GAR for the states of Mississippi and Louisiana, had authorized the creation of five black Grand Army of the Republic posts in the state of Mississippi, or within the department, which would include Mississippi and Louisiana. And this really set off a firestorm of protest. All of the posts that had been raised in the two states prior to this time had been white. And the men that, that belonged to these posts were very integrated into the Southern community. A lot of them had Southern wives. Most of them had businesses that were dependent on Southern uh, people coming into their businesses. And so they had to be very cognizant of Southern moors and particularly when it came to dealings with African Americans. At this time, segregation was very much the order of the day. And having any kind of organization where you had blacks and whites mixing on an equal basis was going to raise a lot of concern with Southern whites. And so a lot of the GAR membership was very concerned that if we allow these African-American posts to be formed, we're going to be ostracized in the community. And was that the case? If it had gone forward and they had stayed in the JR, yes, it would have been. The plan to bring the African-American posts into the JR was uh, accomplished. At the national convention, it was voted on by the JR membership, and they did vote to allow these posts to be formed. And very soon after that, the one white post in Mississippi, Vicksburg Post Number 7, a lot of the membership met and voted to disband. So were there black posts in other parts of the United States before this? Yes, there were. So, uh, and there so, were even some integrated posts in some northern states. Huh. There, it was more common to have separate white and black posts, uh, but uh, there were some integrated posts. The Confederate veterans had an organization in Mississippi as well. Did they have a post in Vicksburg? And if they did, how did that post and the Vicksburg GAR post get along? The Confederate organization was the United Confederate Veterans, and they did have a post in Vicksburg. It was Camp 32 of the United Confederate Veterans, 
And surprisingly, they had very cordial relations with the GAR. In fact, when the commander of the GAR, William Blaything, made an announcement for a Memorial Day celebration, he actually invited all ex-federal soldiers and uh, sons of veterans and all ex-Confederate soldiers and their sons. And they would hold parties together. In fact, uh, there was one headline uh, that claimed that, uh, quote, federal and Confederate veterans meet in pleasant celebration. This party also included speeches by Confederate veterans that were, quote, well-received by the audience. In 1891, they had a joint Thanksgiving celebration, which they called a Thanksgiving campfire, which included singing of Dixie and a recitation of the poem Lines on a Confederate Note, which was a mournful lament of the defeat of the Confederacy. So the GAR really went out of its way to build good relations with local Confederate veterans, which was just in their own best interest since they were, I mean, they were living in this community yeah, with they these were now men. Vicksburg citizens or Mississippi Yes, citizens. and so it, it was really in their best interest to try and maintain these kind of cordial uh, relations. The story of Reconstruction in Mississippi is told in Jackson's Museum of Mississippi History and Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. Learn about Hiram Rhodes Revels, the first African-American to serve in Congress, John Roy Lynch, the first African-American speaker of the Mississippi House of Representatives, who went on to multiple terms in the United States House of Representatives, and Blanche Kelso Bruce, the first African-American to be elected to a full term in the United States Senate. Learn as well about the return to power of Mississippi's white citizens and the methods they used to control black citizens. Find out how to visit the museums at mmh.mdah.ms.gov and mcrm.mdah.ms.gov. So those groups had a cordial relationship, but the establishment of black posts of the Grand Army of the Republic was really a bridge too far for those Union veterans. Yes, that one move really threatened the cordial relations that had been built up over several years between the Union and Confederate veterans. In fact, uh, one GAR member from Louisiana who was a member of the same department wrote, I don't know whether you understand the prejudice that we had to contend with, the social ostracism we had to go through when we admitted them into posts, when he's talking about African-American posts. So the Vicksburg GAR had a decision to make, and they came down firmly on the side of uh, caution, and uh, they were very adamantly opposed, at least the leadership in in particular was very adamantly opposed to adding any African-American posts into the department. But were those posts added despite that fact? Yes, they were. The uh, national encampment of the JAR was held once a year, and that's when most of the major decisions were made for the organization, and all the membership would send delegates that would vote. And uh, that particular year, uh, the issue came up of whether to authorize these black departments in Mississippi and Louisiana. It was voted on by the the membership. And to their credit, they were not going to have any part of segregation or other diminishing of of African-American veterans. They basically said these men were willing to fight side by side with us during the war when everything was on the line and the nation's life was at stake and we're not going to turn our backs on them now. And so the African-American posts were authorized. 
And then the fallout from that was very quick and dramatic in uh, Mississippi. Frederick Speed, who by that time had become uh, department commander of Mm. Louisiana and Mississippi, had sent out an order saying that uh, these African-American posts are not to be, uh, you're not to have any interaction with them. And the national leadership, uh, as soon as they heard this, they removed Speed from office, they removed his uh, vice commander from office, and they removed the junior vice commander. So all three top leadership spots in the Department of Louisiana and Mississippi were just declared vacant. And uh, men that were more in line with what the national leadership wanted were put into those roles. And the African-American posts were, in fact, formed and got underway. How many African-American posts did there wind up being in Mississippi? And what were some of those posts? Had what, what was the order that they came about? Did they open up the first one in Vicksburg as well? I have to begin by saying the documentation on a lot of these posts is very slim, slim to non-existent. And this is an excellent point, uh, an excellent moment to point out that we're here talking with you today because this is all original research that you've done. There's not a a book on the history of the GAR in Mississippi that you're consulting on this. You are working with primary documents. For the most part, there was a basic list of the the posts that had been created in the state, but that was about it. There was yeah. almost no information whatsoever about them other than the names and where they were in some cases. And in most cases, what I've been able to find has been from the newspapers. Uh, digitization of newspapers has been a godsend for this kind of research it's because a thing. in a lot of cases, that's the only place you're going to find them mentioned. Right. Because they're they're writing the first draft of history. Yeah, these these posts, in a lot of cases, there are no surviving documents. You know, they're charters. Nothing survives. And they're, the brief mentions you find of them in the newspapers, in some cases, are going to be the only historical record uh, I've been able to turn up so far. Yeah. But all told, from what I've been able to uh, prove from documentation, there were 20 posts in Mississippi uh, that were African-American. And uh, they ranged from being in very large cities like Natchez and Vicksburg to some in very small uh, towns like, uh, uh, in fact, the the very first post in the state, W.T. Sherman Post number 2, was in Shelby, Mississippi. Uh, You also had Dan Ullman Post 28 in Chatham, Mississippi, places I had never heard of and had yeah. to look up to find out even you know where they were at. But a lot of these, these smaller posts were in the Delta where you had a large African-American community. So there were lots of veterans and they, and they formed their own post. Do you know what the numbers were on any of those posts? How many members they contained? For most of them, I don't. Yeah. For the, In fact, the only post where I've really got good numbers is one of the posts that was in Vicksburg and the reason I have that is because the post it was one of the posts that actually built their own post hall and unfortunately it burned down. Mm. And but they had insurance and the insurance lapsed the day of the fire. Oh. And there was a, a court case because the the post was uh claiming that the insurance was still in effect at the Mm. time of the fire. The insurance company was saying, no, it wasn't. And it ended up going all the way to the state Supreme Court. And in the court documents, which we have at archives in in our holdings, they listed every member of the uh, post in in the uh, legal brief. Yeah. 
And in, in that particular post, uh, I want to say there was about 35, 40 members. Wow. Yeah. So do you have any understanding of what the activities of those African-American posts were? Did they differ at all from the white GAR posts and what they did? No, they really didn't differ in what they did. Uh, there was less notice of it taken by the rest of the community. Right. But in the African-American community, they were they were very prominent. Uh, they had parades on major holidays, in particular Memorial Day. Uh, in fact, every Memorial Day, there would be a large parade and a celebration and a, uh, a ceremony out in the Vicksburg National Cemetery commemorating all of the, the Union dead, which was very appropriate uh, given that uh, a large percentage of the uh, dead soldiers buried in Vicksburg National Cemetery were African-American soldiers right. who had served at Vicksburg uh, uh, during the occupation period right. after the after the fall of city. So what were the names of some of these posts? Who did they name these after? In a lot of cases, they would name them after a very prominent uh, general, such as the, the William T. Sherman Post in Shelby, Mississippi. But in, in many cases, uh, particularly with the African-American Post, they would name it after someone that was very influential in the African-American community that had served in the war, such as uh, T.W. Stringer, uh, who would come to Mississippi during the war, had uh, established the first uh, Freemasonry in, in the state for African-Americans, and it was a very prominent African-American businessman and politician. In, in the city of Vicksburg. Uh, there was a post named after him. Uh, you had the Fred Douglas post named hmm. after, of course, the, the famous yeah. uh, orator and uh, Frederick Douglass. Uh, there was James Lynch post number 33 in Port Gibson. So a lot of the very prominent African-Americans that uh, uh, really had uh, made names for themselves during the Reconstruction period and after were honored by having posts named after them. Yeah. The problem with a group like the Grand Army of the Republic is it is made up of veterans. And so when those veterans begin to die, necessarily the group shrinks in size. What was the story of the latter years of the Grand Army of the Republic and, and were there any successor organizations to it? The, the membership of the Grand Army of the Republic peaked in about 1890 with half a million membership nationwide. And after that time, as decades went on, unfortunately, the numbers were, were just decreasing each decade as, as, they, as the veterans succumbed to time and, and, and disease and, and just getting old. And the veterans did were aware of this. They were very aware of it and talked about it. And they did want their legacy to continue. And that's why there was a successor organization to the Grand Army the Republic created called the Sons of Union Veterans, the SUV which is still in existence today. And it was an organization made up of the descendants of Union veterans. And anyone else uh, that is very interested in, in the, the subject can uh, also join as an associate member. Hmm. But uh, there are uh, Sons of Union veteran posts all over the nation. Unfortunately, there is not one in Mississippi yet, but there are some in Alabama and Tennessee that you can join as an at-large member if, if you're interested. Are there any traces of the GAR left in Mississippi? Are there any monuments, memorials? Are there any places connected to them? Unfortunately, there's not much. Um, I don't know of any uh, surviving post halls. Uh, there are no monuments that I'm aware of to any members of the GAR. There are a number of descendants of men that served in the GAR from Mississippi uh, because I've, I've had contact with a number of them. Um, in fact, uh, several of them have sent me uh, 
photographs of their relatives and even little biographies of them. So there, there is a fairly large number of descendants of, of these men in the state. Uh, unfortunately, there's just not much in the uh, of a tangible nature that you can see uh, uh, right. that, that harkens back to their history. But there were some photographs of these men taken at the time, right? I mean, there are photographs that exist of some of the membership of those posts. Yes. Uh, I've, I've run across photos of at least a dozen members, particularly at the reunions. The, the veterans love to get their pictures taken. And uh, so you, you'll see a fair number of, of pictures of these guys going to uh, both uh, statewide and national reunions. And then uh, a lot of the descendants still have photographs of the men. And then the papers, particularly from the teens and 20s when the organization was still in existence, published lots of photographs of them. So uh, Photographic evidence is, is fairly uh, fairly common. And there are some artifacts in some Mississippi museums. Yes. In fact, one of the best artifacts is at the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum down at Camp Shelby. They actually have one of the, uh, the uh, medals worn by the members of the Department of Mississippi or Louisiana and Mississippi. It, it was a very distinctive medal that had uh, a pelican representing Louisiana and a cotton bale uh, representing Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And it is, in fact, the only representative example of that medal that I know that's still in existence. And they have it on display at at, uh, the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum. What were some of the accomplishments of the Grand Army of the Republic on a national scale? What, What were they able to accomplish and leave behind? When they were at their height, the Grand Army of the Republic was very influential with uh, politicians, uh, particularly on the, on the state and national level. They lobbied for things that their membership was interested in, uh, particularly pensions for Union veterans and their widows, uh, old age homes for veterans. Um, they were very influential. When the GAR came calling and you were a politician, you listened because these men were very uh, engaged in the community. They voted. And uh, you didn't want to alienate the GAR because uh, if they turned against you, uh, uh, you could have a very rough time getting reelected. So the, for the issues that they were involved with, like uh, particularly pensions, they had a lot of uh, uh, success in getting uh, pension uh, um, amounts upped for veterans. And it really did uh, help a lot of elderly and, and the disabled veterans to live out good lives when they when they got older and they could no longer work. Were they able to accomplish that for both the white and black veterans? Yes, they were. Um, they The pensions were uh, available for both black and white veterans. The uh, veterans' homes uh, uh, were open to black and white veterans. Not to say it couldn't have been more difficult for black veterans, but, the, but those uh, opportunities were there for those that persevered and took advantage of them. And did the GAR have any – does our observance of Memorial Day have any connection to the GAR? Yes. Uh, Memorial Day was probably the most important uh, holiday for the GAR. And in fact, Memorial Day was founded on the orders of the national commander of the GAR at the time. And that really began the the observance. And it was through the GAR that really that popularized that holiday. And uh, they every Memorial Day, they would press home that uh, the sacrifices that had been made for the country by all of these men. You know, there are national cemeteries dotting the, the United States where there are, you know, thousands of these veterans. And at every single one of them, you would have 
on Memorial Day, you would have a, le- a wreath laying, you would have a parade, you would have uh, speeches by uh, politicians and members of the GAR. It was a big event. It would be covered by the newspapers and uh, uh, it really helped to uh, popularize and, and memorialize the sacrifices of the, the Union soldiers during the war. Jeff, what do we know about the very last days of the GAR in Mississippi? Well, the GAR, uh, as a national organization, had its end actually in the 1950s. Hmm. The last member, uh, Albert Wilson, uh, passed away in 1956 at the age of 109. Uh, in Mississippi, the organization had uh, gone defunct a, a little bit earlier. The last reference I can find to the GAR in the state is the uh, ransom post number 16 in Natchez. It went defunct in 1933. And as far as I can tell, that was the last operating post in the state. Uh, there may have been one operating past that, but I've not been able to, to discover any any documentation to that effect. So by the by the ni- mid-1930s, the GAR had pretty much gone defunct in the state. I think at the state level, at the national level, probably at the international level, there is an awareness of Mississippi's Confederate history but it's really fascinating to delve more into the union history of the state. Thank you, Jeff Gambrone, for being here with us and talking about this today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Speaking of Mississippi is a joint production of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Community Foundation for Mississippi. On other episodes this season, we'll talk about the 1970 Jackson State shootings, the yellow fever epidemic of 1878, and the Civil War Siege of Jackson. This season, our opening music comes from a 1942 recording by Sid Hempel, the most storied black musician in the Mississippi Hills in the early 20th century. Our closing music was recorded in 1939 by Tishomingo County fiddler John Hatcher and included on the 1985 Mississippi Department of Archives and History release, Great Big Yam Potatoes. I'm Chris Goodwin, and thank you for listening to Speaking of Mississippi.